York. This is Democracy Now! The justice system needs to deal with the erosion of democracy. It, it is true in American history that if we don't deal with people who engage in election denialism and try to overthrow elections, that they'll do it again. And that's exactly what Fonnie Willis is trying to prevent here in Fulton County. U.S. District Judge Tanya Chutkin has set a date of March 4th for Donald Trump's trial for plotting to overturn the 2020 election. We'll go to Georgia to speak with the co-founder of Black Voters Matters, as well as a law professor who was inside the Georgia courtroom when Trump's former chief of staff, Mark Meadows, testified Monday in an attempt to get his state trial moved to a federal court. Then to Jacksonville, Florida. Our community is grappling to understand why this atrocity occurred. I urge us all not to look for sense in a senseless act of violence. There's no reason or explanation that we'll ever account for the shooter's decisions and actions. His sickening ideology is not representative of the values of this Jacksonville community that we all love so much. Vigils are continuing in Jacksonville, Florida, after a white supremacist gunman fatally shot three black people at a dollar store Saturday. We'll get the latest and look back at another incident of racial violence in Jacksonville 63 years ago this week. Klansmen armed with wooded axe handles attacked peaceful civil rights activists who were trying to desegregate the city's lunch counters. The day became known as Axe Handle Saturday. When he got down to him in Park, there were white males in Confederate uniforms handing out axe handles. All that and more coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. A federal judge in Washington, D.C., is set March 4th, 2024, as the first day of former President Donald Trump's criminal trial for plotting to overturn the 2020 election. Trump's lawyers argued the trial should be delayed until April 2026. Instead, it's set to begin one day before Super Tuesday's presidential primaries. Meanwhile, Trump's former White House chief of staff, Mark Meadows, testified before a federal judge in Georgia Monday as part of an effort to move his trial from state court to federal court. Meadows is one of Trump's 18 co-defendants in the Georgia case. Arraignments for that case are scheduled for September 6th. We'll have more on the criminal legal cases against Trump and his allies after headlines. The University of North Carolina Chapel Hill says a suspect has been arrested for fatally shooting a faculty member in a science building Monday. UNC officials have yet to identify the staffer who was killed or a possible motive in the shooting, which prompted a campus-wide lockdown that lasted for nearly three hours and prompted security alerts that disrupted classes at public schools on the first day of the school year throughout Chapel Hill. Meanwhile, in California, investigators say the gunman who killed three and wounded six others at a Southern California biker bar last week was a retired police sergeant who traveled from Ohio to confront his estranged wife. Former Ventura police officer John Snowling used three handguns and a shotgun during the massacre, all of which he purchased legally. Republican lawmakers in Tennessee have voted once again to silence State Representative Justin Jones, a black Democrat from Nashville who was previously expelled from the House, then reelected to office this summer for leading protests against gun violence. 
On Monday, State Representative Jones was barred by Republicans from speaking for the remainder of the day after he made critical comments about a bill to bring more police officers into Tennessee schools. After protesters in the House gallery erupted into chants of fascists and racists, Republicans ordered state police to remove the public, including the parents of students who died from gun violence in the Covenant School shooting. This is State Representative Justin Jones speaking outside Tennessee's Capitol building just after he was silenced. What we're seeing is this misapplication, this abuse of rules um, under the leadership of Speaker Cameron Sexton. Um, members of the public were, were taken out of the gallery. Um, I was told I was going to be silent. Our caucus walked out in solidarity um, because what's happening is not democratic. It is authoritarianism. Um, it's very troubling what we're witnessing here. You can see that the Capitol... Um, is surrounded, you know, by troopers. This does not look like a Democratic body anymore. Before he was silenced, State Representative Jones had been planning to force a vote of no confidence in the leadership of Cameron Sexton, the Speaker of the Tennessee House of Representatives. Justin Jones' interview with Democracy Now! You can see at democracynow.org on Monday. It was his 28th birthday. The leader of Sudan's military junta has ruled out a quick end to months of fighting with the rapid support forces condemning the rival paramilitary group as traitors in a speech to soldiers. General Abdel Fattah al-Burhan made the remarks Monday after the head of the RSF said he was open to a long-term ceasefire and talks to end Sudan's crisis. This comes as the United Nations warns of severe malnour malnourishment among Sudan's children. A U.N. spokesperson said the fighting has internally displaced more than 3.6 million people, while nearly one million have fled across Sudan's borders. The longer this fighting continues, the more devastating its impact is going to be. Hundreds of thousands of children are already severely malnourished and at imminent risk of death if left untreated. Millions more will have their education replaced by the devastating traumas of war becoming a lost generation. France's ambassador to Niger is defying an ultimatum from leaders of the military junta to leave his post within 48 hours. On Monday, French President Emmanuel Macron said from Paris that Niger's former colonial ruler would continue to support the deposed president, Mohamed Bazoum, and would support efforts by the regional bloc ECOWAS to restore him by force if necessary. Our policy is simple. We do not recognize coup leaders. We support the president, who has not resigned, and we are committed to standing by his side. We support diplomatic efforts by ECOWAS and military action when it will be approved in the framework of partnership. Guatemala's Supreme Electoral Tribunal has certified Bernardo Arevalo's victory in last week's presidential election runoff. Earlier Monday, a separate body ordered the suspension of Arevalo's progressive Semilla party, throwing the results into disarray as the party vowed to appeal its decision. Guatemala's attorney general's office is investigating allegations of irregularities in Semilla's legal registration process, accusations Semilla and supporters say are part of an ongoing scheme by the Guatemalan corrupt business and political elite to discredit credit the democratic movement that propelled them into power. Arevalo received 60 percent of the vote, beating former First Lady Sandra Torres, who's backed by the right-wing elite. Arevalo has vowed to fight corruption and push for social reforms. His inauguration in Guatemala City, alongside Vice President-elect Karine Herrera, is scheduled for January 14th. 
Hurricane Adalia skirted the western coast of Cuba early this morning as it closed in on Florida's western coast, where it's expected to rapidly intensify ahead of its landfall Wednesday as a Category 3 storm with potentially life-threatening storm surges. Most of Florida's Gulf Coast remains under hurricane or tropical storm warnings, with evacuation orders issued for residents in low-lying areas of several counties, including the greater Tampa Bay region, which has avoided a direct hurricane impact for nearly a century. Adalia is expected to bring up to 12 feet of storm surge to Florida's Big Bend region. Four asylum seekers have died after the boat capsized off the Greek island of Lesbos Monday. There were 18 survivors taken into custody by Greek authorities, including refugees believed to be from Yemen, Palestine and Somalia. The Biden administration's has known Saudi security forces were killing Ethiopian asylum seekers since at least last fall, but chose to keep quiet. That's according to The New York Times, which reports United Nations officials last year presented the U.S. with information about Saudi border guards shooting Ethiopian asylum seekers, including women and children. The gruesome abuse was exposed by a Human Rights Watch report earlier this month, which documented how hundreds— and possibly thousands of asylum seekers have been killed. The group said Saudi authorities fired machine guns and explosive weapons at asylum seekers who were fleeing human rights abuses in Ethiopia's Tigray region and attempted to cross the Yemen-Saudi border. Guards also executed people at close range. The report cited firsthand accounts from 42 Ethiopian asylum seekers, over 100 verified videos and photos, and analysis of satellite imagery between 2021 and this year. The Biden administration has not publicly criticized Saudi Arabia, a close ally for the killings. To see our coverage, go to democracynow.org. A young Palestinian man has died of his wounds nearly two months after he was shot in the head during an Israeli army raid in the occupied West Bank. 20-year-old Ezzedine Kanan was from the town of Jaba, outside the city of Jenin. He's one of at least 172 Palestinians killed by Israeli forces since the start of the year. Human Rights Watch warns last year was the deadliest year for Palestinian children in the West Bank in 15 years, and this year is on track to meet or exceed last year's levels. Human Human Rights Watch added in a statement, quote, unless Israel's allies, particularly the United States, pressure Israel to change course, more Palestinian children will be killed, unquote. U.S. Commerce Secretary Gina Raimondo is in China for a four-day visit aimed at reducing tensions over Taiwan. Speaking from Beijing after a meeting with her counterpart on Monday, Raimondo said the Biden administration wants to maintain a stable economic relationship with China and more than $700 billion of mutual trade between the U.S. and China. The vast majority of our trade and investment relationship does not involve national security concerns. And in this regard, I'm committed uh, to promoting trade and investment in those areas that are in our mutual best interest. And in Colorado, the city of Denver's reached a $4.7 million settlement with more than 300 Black Lives Matter activists who were brutally arrested by police in the summer of 2020. The settlement was unanimously approved by the Denver City Council, siding with protesters who said police violated their First Amendment rights. The class action lawsuit accused Denver police of using violent tactics against hundreds of protesters to enforce a curfew enacted in response to the massive racial justice actions following the police murder of George Floyd in Minnesota. Protesters described Denver police firing tear gas, flashbang grenades, pepper balls, rubber bullets and other projectiles without giving them any time to disperse. 
And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. Coming up, we look at the trials of Donald Trump. Stay with us. One thing you have to agree with me, and that is for sure, and that is for sure, nobody can live forever. And everybody is the same. There we go. How we doing, man? What's happening? All right. Yeah, 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 yeah. Sooner or later, sooner or later, you're going to understand that. There we go. Nobody can live forever. Nobody will know how I feel. Nobody can live forever by Timaya. Here on Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman in New York with Juan Gonzalez in Chicago. Hi, Juan. Hi, Amy, and welcome to all of our listeners and viewers across the country and around the world. The federal trial of Donald Trump for plotting to overturn the 2020 election is now set to begin in Washington, D.C. on March 4th, 2024, one day before the Super Tuesday presidential primaries. District Judge Tanya Chutkin selected the date on Monday. Trump's legal team had asked for the trial to be delayed until 2026, while special counsel Jack Smith had proposed January 2024 start date. In making their case for delaying the trial, Trump's legal team cited the 1931 case of the Scottsboro Boys, a group of black teenagers who were quickly tried and convicted after being falsely accused of raping a white woman. The Supreme Court eventually reversed their convictions. Judge Chutkin rejected the argument, saying Trump's case is quite, is, quote, profoundly different. She wrote, quote, I have seen many cases unduly delayed because a defendant lacks adequate representation. This is not the case here, she said. Meanwhile, in a separate case, former White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows testified before a federal judge in Georgia Monday as part of an effort to move his state trial from state to federal court. Meadows is one of Trump's 18 co-defendants in the Georgia case. Arraignments for that case are scheduled for September 6th. We go now to Atlanta, where we're joined by two guests. Cliff Albright is co-founder and executive director of Black Voters Matter. Anthony Michael Christ is an assistant professor of law at Georgia State University. He was in the courtroom Monday where Mark Meadows testified. Let's begin there, uh, Professor Christ. Um, you were in the courtroom. Talk about what Mark Meadows is arguing for, going to uh, moving uh, the case to a federal court. And the surprise that he himself testified for hours, what exactly he said and what's now on the record that can be used against him in the trial. So Mark Meadows really wants to get his case removed and tried, not in Fulton County 
state court, but he wants it in federal court, uh, partially because the, the, the jury pool might be more favorable uh, for him and because uh, I, I think that there's a, an expectation that federal rules of procedure might be more favorable. And so Mark Meadows essentially has to show that he was acting at least plausibly within the scope of his employment as chief of staff to President Trump, and, and that's why he's entitled to this removal. So uh, there was a lot of debate and discussion about whether the, the actions he was taking taking in Georgia uh, were consistent with his job, consistent with a federal interest that would warrant removal. Um, And he gave a lot of very general explanations that weren't particularly persuasive. What was somewhat surprising was, yes, that the fact that uh, he testified because he's under criminal indictment. So he was open to cross-examination in addition to the testimony he provided uh, on direct examination. And the the big thing that I think we, we should kind of focus focus on here is he had very few answers for some of the, uh, the the issues and the evidence that the DA proffered that showed he was working with the campaign as chief of staff, which is unlawful under the Hatch Act, which is a federal law that says uh, federal employees can't engage in election, uh, you know, partisan electioneering. So, for example, he didn't uh, have a really good answer for why he offered to help uh, get the assistance of Trump campaign funds to engage in a, a an audit of. Uh, ballots here in Fulton County. He didn't have a particularly good explanation of why he was coordinating the fake elector scheme and the phone call between Brad Raffensperger and Donald Trump um, through the through election campaign officials. And he had really no answer for why, if he thought this was really about the federal government ensuring free and fair elections here in Georgia, that he never roped in or, or read into his calls people from the Department of Justice or the Department of Homeland Security. So I, I think that he really had a very bad day. Um, the threshold, to be clear, is pretty low to bring a case into federal court from state court for those who, who have been former federal employees. But, but I do think he had, a, he had a rough time on the stand. And Professor Christ, could, uh, what was your sense of how the judge was reacting to, uh, uh, to the, the, his testimony in particular and her uh, disposition to potentially move the case to federal court? Well, I think that there, there's a couple of, of truths here. First is Mark Meadows is a pretty affable guy. So um, in terms of, of his testimony, he seemed in some degree cooperative. He seemed quite likable, which is great um, if you if you want to put your, your client on the stand. I think that's partially why he was put on the stand is because he has a pretty decent personality. And I think that that came across. However, um, at the same time, there were a number of, of moments where he seemed to be evasive or seemed to give answers that droned on in order to avoid uh, answering the question that the, the Fulton County DA's office posed to him. So I, I think the judge um, a number of times redirected Mark Meadows to provide more direct, clearer answers that really spoke to what the Fulton DA was trying to ask. And, and that's, of course, not a particularly great thing, right? Because because the judge ultimately has to decide whether a witness is credible in, in deciding these, these kinds of questions. So, um, you know, I think in, in some respects, his testimony was a mixed bag. Um, you know, he came across, again, as being somewhat cooperative and, and easygoing and, um, you know, pretty his demeanor was, was generally good for, for a defendant in his situation. But at the same time, uh, I think the judge was skeptical of his evasiveness. 
and there there will be at least some of the defendants who will have a speedier trial uh, later this year, including Kenneth Cheesebro. What's your sense of the the implications of this for Trump himself? That in essence, that the prosecution will have to put much of its case uh, in that trial ahead of time, so that the Trump defense team, when he does come to trial, will have a pretty good sense of all of the. Uh, the uh, the strategy of the prosecution. Well, I, I think it's a double edged sword. So the, the, the first threshold issue, though, is that uh, Judge Scott McAfee will be the one who decides when these trials occur. So there isn't it isn't necessarily a, a given that Donald Trump will be tried separately from the individuals who've asked for a speedy trial. So so that's kind of a threshold question we don't really have an answer to. But in the event that these are severed, um, I, the, the double-edged sword is basically this. On the one hand, Donald Trump's team will get a taste of what the evidence is that, that hasn't been publicly released, how the prosecutor will approach this, and, and will find ways uh, you know, perhaps to poke holes in evidence when it comes time for Donald Trump to, to come to trial. Um, on the other hand, uh, the, the same thing is true. The DA, the DA can learn what kinds of arguments might work better or may not work so well against Donald Trump. And this is, could be a test uh, trial. But the real danger for Donald Trump is the fact that when you have a number of, uh, of defendants proceeding earlier, the likelihood is that there will be one or maybe more who will give evidence inadvertently that, that incriminates Donald Trump. They'll point fingers at Donald Trump or other people who are higher up in the, in the food chain. Um, and there's also the, the potential for some of these defendants to strike deals. And I think it's really, really unlikely that Fawny Willis, the district attorney here in Fulton County, will allow people to uh, engage in plea deals that, that you know, either give some very light sentences or just, a, you know, uh, essentially a slap on the wrist without fundamentally admitting that they engaged in an unlawful racketeering scheme. And that could be very dangerous for Donald Trump, too. So so I, I think it really cuts in, in two different ways. Um, there's a lot of variables here that we still have to sort through here in, in Fulton County, right, whether these cases will be in state court versus federal court, when the trials will, will occur. Are there co-defendants who are currently engaged in negotiations to turn state's evidence for the prosecution's benefit? Um, so, so there's a lot of open-ended questions that remain. I want to bring Cliff Albright into this conversation, co-founder and executive director of Black Voters Matter. Can you once again frame this as a voting rights issue, um, as a massive violation of voting rights in Georgia, this RICO case that's been brought against the president of the United States, his chief of staff, what they did in your state of Georgia? Yeah, uh, thanks, Amy. To be clear, you know, we have to be uh, honest that what Trump was attacking, what this entire conspiracy, because we should all be very clear, wasn't just Trump, right? 19, at least 19 uh, co-conspirators, even more that are unindicted at this point. But what they were attacking wasn't wasn't even necessarily all voters of Georgia. I mean, in the big picture, it was all voters. It was the entire country. But they were specifically going after black voters, right? They were specifically upset about Fulton County voters, right? The same way that they were upset about Pennsylvania, but they were really upset about Philadelphia the same way they were upset about Michigan, but they were really upset just about Detroit. And so, um, you know, this, this attack 
on voters overall, but in particular targeted at, at black voters, we can't underestimate the scale of it. Even if we look at one aspect of it, the, the you know, much, you know, until recently underreported aspect of the Coffee County uh, break-in, the breach in the security systems. Um, again, this is a county which had a history of suppressing black votes, of, atta- of attacking black activists like Olivia Cole- Coley Pearson, uh, who, by the way, the, the uh, Georgia uh, Raffensperger Secretary of State and GBI spent more time and resources investigating one woman, Olivia Pearson, in Coffee County, uh, just for helping people illiterate voters to be able to vote than they have spent investigating the Coffee County breach, right? And so all of this we have got put in the context of the wider uh, suppression of black votes and the wider risk to uh, our voting systems and to this entire democracy. What happens in one county or in one state could, in fact, jeopardize the entire nation. Can you talk, Cliff Albright, about what's happening at two levels with an attack on Fannie Willis herself, the uh, Fulton County DA? Um, You have the beginning of this legal battle between Georgia Republicans and Willis as they may potentially try to remove her from office using Senate Bill 92, the law signed by Governor Brian Kemp, states that a prosecutor can be removed for, quote, conduct prejudicial to the administration. Administration of Justice, which brings the office into disrepute. Can you talk about that? And most recently, Ohio Congressman Jim Jordan, um, chair of the House Judiciary Committee, right, the U.S. Congress, announcing he's opening an inquiry into Willis, um, questioning whether she had collaborated with the Biden administration and targeting any federal funding her office receives. So she'll be taking on these investigations at the same time she's bringing this RICO conspiracy case against the 19, including the former president. Yeah, and of course you've got those two threats, which are you know legal and um, administrative threats. But then you've also got the other threats that we also know about, right? The physical threats, the intimidation, the threats of of violence, which is a whole nother story. But just in terms of like those two um, political threats, you know, you, you you'd like to not even take the Jim Jordan threat seriously. I mean, he's trying to you know threatening to subpoena her. We what we know is that that's not going to go anywhere. She's under no obligation to respond to that. But what we also know is that to a certain extent, not only is he trying to take Trump, he's he's possibly even trying to protect himself. You know, he's been um, kind of implicated in some of these overall conspiracy, not the actual um, charges that have been filed, but just in terms of his overall involvement in this in this plan and some of the White House meetings and, and so on and so forth. Um, the far more serious one, though, other than the, the federal one that Jordan is leading, is the state uh, version, which at the time we all knew, many of us, including myself, warned that this was being targeted directly at Fonnie Willis. It was also being directed at uh, other DAs that you know Republicans in the state feel aren't being "quote unquote" tough on crime, that they're not enforcing uh, you know the the. Uh, the harshest sentences that they're not enforcing or going aggressively after after you know marijuana cases also has been targeted at DAs that have said that they wouldn't be aggressive at enforcing uh, abortion uh, uh, rules and, and and laws that goes for Georgia as well as Florida as, as well as elsewhere. But when Georgia in particular announced this law and went after it, what we knew was that they had Bonnie Willis squarely in in their targets, and that's exactly what we're seeing, right? And so we could very well see a situation where this state, where by the way, Trump, as you've reported on, Trump cannot receive a pardon from the governor in this state. So the only way for them to really derail this is to derail the actual charges and the actual litigation, and that's what they're trying to do 
by threatening Fannie Willis. It's important because it speaks to a point that I've said uh, several times. There's more than one way to overturn an election. Right. The Trump investigation is one way that they tried to overturn an election. But we are seeing time and time again with DAs, with mayors, with city councils, with legislators, as you just talked about earlier in the show, in terms of Tennessee, that they are finding ways to overturn elections by simply removing people from offices, DAs and others, restricting their jurisdiction so that they don't get to control as much territory. See Jackson, Mississippi, right, creating a whole new jurisdiction or in some cases simply limiting their powers uh, to be able to investigate or take certain certain actions and preempting certain laws. There's more than one way to overturn an election. And black voters and black communities have been experiencing this long before Trump stepped on the scene. And Cliff Albright, I'd like to go back to something you mentioned earlier, the Coffee County incident that is one of the central parts of this uh, uh, RICO uh, indictment. Could you, for those people who are not aware, talk more specifically about what is alleged that happened in Coffee County uh, on the part of uh, some of the Trump uh, supporters and, uh, and campaign folks? Yeah, it's a great question because it's, it's, it's a uh, complicated uh, piece of the puzzle that a lot of people really still don't understand. want to give a shout out to Marilyn Marks, Coalition for Good Governance, um, that did a, a lot of great work. A lot of people wouldn't know, the country wouldn't know what happened in Coffee County if not for litigation and activism that was already taking place in that county, um, even before some of these federal investigations and state investigations started. But to put simply, what happened was that you had... Um, local officials in Coffee County who allegedly gave an invite to uh, certain um, um, Trump-related agents, including, of all people, cyber ninjas that many of us know of in, in, in Arizona, but gave invites for them to come in and inspect uh, the, the computer systems and the softwares and the voter information in Coffee County. Um, we know that that officials from the Secretary of State's office Georgia investigators actually came into the office at a time when you had unauthorized official uh, unauthorized agents in the very office where there's not supposed to be any other access other than um, the, the county election officials. But there were people in that office and they knew it. It's on video, but nothing was done. No investigation had been started at the, at the state level. Why this is so dangerous and why it's part of the overall conspiracy is because because of the nature of Georgia's election systems and the ways that um, um, the state mandates the machines and the systems for the entire state and the ways that they are connected just coming in the door in Coffee County doesn't just get you access to Coffee County voters. The way that our friends uh, Marilyn has put it and others have put it is that picture um, the Georgia election systems and voter information as being a safe that has 159 doors to get into the safe. That's 159 counties in the state of Georgia. You can get into that safe through any one of those doors, but one, it, once in, you have access to the entire system. So it's not just that they breached Coffee County, they breached the entire state. And in doing so, they put this entire election at risk and future elections, because mind you, the state of Georgia is still using, they've not changed anything in the system. So our upcoming 2024 elections are still using the same system that we know has been breached. 
I want to bring uh, Anthony Michael Kreiss into the conversation on the other trial, right, the federal trial, and the significance of the judge there, uh, Judge Chutkin, setting March 4th of next year. We're talking about two trials, right? You have Mark Meadows wanting to make this a federal trial in Georgia. Now, still, he could not—Trump could not be pardoned, could not pardon himself, uh, even if it's a federal trial. Uh, though it will draw from a larger, more white jury pool if it becomes a federal trial, not just Fulton County. But on this other case, March 4th, the significance of this, and then the significance of Trump's lawyer raising the case of the Scottsboro Boys as an example of why Trump should be tried in two years rather than next year? Professor Anthony Michael Kreiss. Yeah, it's it's offensive. So um, I think the the important lesson from the Scottsboro Boys case is that in Alabama in the early 1930s, you had powers that be who used the criminal justice system in order to reinforce white supremacy, all white juries, rushed sham trials, lack of criminal process and procedure. Um, That's just not what's happening here in Washington, D.C., in the special counsel's case at all. Uh, Donald Trump has been afforded every opportunity to um, you know, to have a robust defense. The evidence that's being laid before the federal court has been the byproduct of a very long, intense investigation. It is real evidence. Um, he has every opportunity to actually uh, you know, lodge a defense in court in a trial uh, and poke holes in that evidence in in front of a jury of his peers. Um, It's just simply not an apt, um, you know, or relevant um, observation that the the lawyer made there. So I, I think the other thing that's really kind of important to note is that the defense strategy has been one to also attack uh, the, the, the worthiness, the citizenship, the uh, ability of Washington, D.C. residents to self-govern and to be good, impartial jurors. Uh, in large part, these attacks are racially motivated and, and calling into question, um, as jo- Donald Trump has often done, uh, the ability of black Americans to be good citizens. And so I think given that context, it's especially offensive to raise the Scottsboro boys as some kind of, um, you know, sign or, or to, to, you know, to, to point to them um, and, and to claim that Donald Trump is a victim of some unlawful, unruly uh, you know, criminal justice process akin to 1930s Alabama. It's, it's simply, simply false. And Professor Chris, I want to ask you about the, again the date of this um, of this uh, federal trial, March fourth, just uh, as the Super Tuesday uh, primaries are, are are about to start. Uh, the likelihood that uh, if the polls hold up as they are holding up now, that Trump will in, in effect be already uh, as after Super Tuesday the the presumptive. Uh, candidate of the Republican Party for president, uh, and yet uh, he will still be in the midst of a trial and the impact that that will have on our politics. Well, I think it's a real test for our constitutional order and our political system. Ultimately, Donald Trump, I, I, I think, will be on the one hand afforded every um, right that he's entitled to under the Constitution and under federal rules of criminal procedure. Um, and, and that's 
right? That's a real testament to our system. On the other hand, while Donald Trump will be the nominee by all accounts, or at least likely accounts from from our vantage point right now, um, the American public also should be entirely aware of the and all the evidence that has been unearthed by the special counsel's office and perhaps even by Fonnie Willis before they make a decision uh, to vote for or not to vote for Donald Trump should he be the nominee come November 2024. So that's a really important thing in terms of having the, you know, giving the public and the, the, the voting public the information necessary to make good choices. Because I, I think it's also important to note that even if Donald Trump were convicted of a crime in D.C., um, if, if or even in, in Georgia, for that matter, and was elected president in 2024, um, you know, he could not only pardon himself from the federal uh, crimes and, and get, make those cases go away, but he also could could basically be forced the state of Georgia to suspend further criminal procedures, proceedings, or even spring him um, from imprisonment, should that be a consequence from a, a potential conviction, um, so that he can run the country. That's a really uh, interesting dynamic. And of course, there's a, another question about whether he's even eligible under the 14th Amendment, um, given the fact that the, the charges here alleged in Washington, D.C., essentially say that he engaged in an activity um, that deprived people of their civil rights or a conspiracy to attempt to deprive people of their civil rights. And part and parcel of that was January 6th. People engaged in violent, uh, you know, insurrection, uh, insurrectionist activities against the United States government and blocked a proceeding of the United States government in order to thwart the peaceful transition of power. And they did so as part of this conspiracy to deprive people of their constitutional rights under the United States Constitution to have their votes counted um, freely and fairly. So I think people really deserve to have the full body of evidence before them before they make this very important decision. Anthony Michael Christ, assistant professor of law at Georgia State University, and Cliff Albright, co-founder and executive director of Black Voters Matter, both speaking to us from Atlanta. Coming up, vigils continuing in Jacksonville, Florida, after white supremacist gunmen fatally shot three black people at a dollar store Saturday. Back in 30 seconds. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman with Juan Gonzalez. Vigils in Jacksonville, Florida, are continuing after white supremacist gunmen shot and killed three black people at a dollar store on Saturday. 
The gunman, who had a swastika on his AR-15-style gun, attacked a dollar store in a predominantly black neighborhood after being turned away from the campus of Edward Waters University, an HBCU, a historically black college. The gunman shot himself dead after the rampage. Jacksonville Sheriff T.K. Waters spoke to reporters. Our community is grappling to understand why this atrocity occurred. I urge us all not to look for sense in a senseless act of violence. There's no reason or explanation that we'll ever account for the shooter's decisions and actions. His sickening ideology is not representative of the values of this Jacksonville community that we all love so much. We are not a community of hate. We stand united with the good and decent people of this city. Saturday's shooting occurred at the same time Thousands were gathering in Washington, D.C. to mark the 60th anniversary of the March on Washington, when Dr. Martin Luther King gave his I Have a Dream speech. The Jacksonville shooting also occurred as civil rights activists in Jacksonville were preparing to remember the 63rd anniversary of Axe Handle Saturday. On August 27, 1960, a white mob led by the Ku Klux Klan violently attacked black protesters who were engaged in peaceful sit-ins in Jacksonville. We're going to play a piece about that in a moment. But right now, we're joined by two guests, Rodney Hurst, civil rights leader from Jacksonville, as well as a historian and the award-winning author of several books, former president of the NAACP Youth Council in Jacksonville that helped lead the sit-in protests in Jacksonville in 1960. We're also joined by Democratic Congress member Maxwell Alejandro Frost of Florida, the first Afro-Cuban American and first member of Generation Z to serve in Congress. Frost is the former national organizing director director for March for Our Lives, which was formed by survivors of the Parkland shooting in Florida. From the Parkland shooting to what we saw in Jacksonville, let's begin with Rodney Hurst. Our condolences to your whole community. Three dead. This so familiar as we saw what happened in Buffalo um, at the Topps grocery store. Can you talk about how people are responding and what they're demanding right now in Jacksonville? And thanks so much for joining us as Jacksonville looks like it's in the target of the storm, the hurricane that's making its way up from Cuba. Yeah, an honor to be with you. Yeah, we are in another hurricane that will come through um, Jacksonville later this week. But this hurricane of racism that we've been dealing with in the Jacksonville community is not new. It's almost as if it's a recurring uh, uh, type circumstance. Uh, Jacksonville's community obviously is outraged. The black community is outraged. There was a, a prayer vigil. The governor showed up at the prayer vigil. He was booed by a number of black folk who were there. Because his rhetoric, the jargon that has dribbled out of his mouth, has set the tempo, the tenor, the atmosphere for the kinds of racism and the core racist attitudes that we have seen that has plowed the ground for the fertility of what, has, what is happening in this country right now. They have taken, they being the DeSantis's, the Donald Trump's of this country, have taken conversations from uh, private sources, private insides to public. And some of the things they used to whisper, they're saying publicly. 
the other problem that I think that we need to deal with is that there is a silence in the white Christian community. Uh, we don't see the outrage with what has happened in with white folk here in Jacksonville. There are some, obviously, and so this won't be a broad brush. But you need to feel that outrage. But what happens is that when you're dealing with the circumstance, and in this country where black folk from the founding of this country have been so disrespected and insulted because they were considered nothing more than property, then it's very easy to see that what happens to us is something, oh, well, uh, it's them and not us, and then people going about their business. But that is not how the way you govern. That is not how the way you develop a community and bring people together. And uh, uh, Rodney Hurst, could you talk about the, uh, back in 1960, uh, your involvement in the civil rights movement, the attack that you suffered on what's called Axe Handle Saturday after dozens of white people attacked you and other peaceful protesters at a lunch counter with uh, axe handles and baseball bats and how far do you think Jacksonville uh, has uh, has come in, uh, in these uh, past uh, 70 so years? Actually, yeah. Rodney Hurst, before you lay it out here, we'd like to give some credit to your grandson-in-law, who did an amazing short doc where um, he brings us the video footage and you describing what happened called Unless We Tell It, the video directed by Kyle Durrell. Um, featuring you, Rodney Hurst, who served as the president of the NAACP Youth Council in Jacksonville, which organized those sit-ins in 1960. Let's go to a clip of that in response to Juan's question. So during the summer, we sat in at all of the lunch counters in downtown Jacksonville. The first one was Woolworths. And we had more than 85 young people that day. Some of the seats were People were sitting in it, but every vacant seat we sat in. And the white waitress said to us, you can't sit here. This is for white people. The colored lunch counter is at the back of the store. And we said, we want to be served. Well, we don't serve Negroes here. You can be served in the back. So the manager came out. His name was James Word, and he read a card. And after he read us the card, he closed the lunch counter. So then White stood behind us yelling the racial epithets, jungle bunny, uh, niggas, ain't acting like colored people for the NAACP. So we always sat longer than lunchtime because we figured that they served fresh lunches. There were no microwaves, no convection ovens. So if you wanted your racism, we wanted to make it as expensive as possible. So we sat longer than the lunchtime. We saw no police the entire time. We later found out that police were there in planes closed because they were taking pictures of all of us. You would think the slogan to protect and serve would mean something. It did not mean anything when it came to those of us who are sitting in, as we have seen in sit-in demonstrations, Jim Clark, Bull Connor, 
they did not care about your age. They cared less than a tinker's dam about who you were, male or female, young or old. If your hue of skin was black, then whatever you got, you deserved it. The end of that week was August 27th. Pearson got a call from, he never did tell us who he got the call from, but got a call saying, and his word to us was, there was some strange goings on at Hemin Park. So when he got down to Hemin Park, there were white males in Confederate uniforms handing out accents. So when we had our meeting that morning at the Lyre Street Presbyterian Church Youth Center, Mr. Pearson told us, it told us what was going on. And Mr. Pearson's words were, something could happen today. We proceeded anyway. It was healthy fear, but it was determined courage. And we sat in. We did not go to Woolworth that day. We went to Grant's, which was on the corner of Adams in Maine. And again, they closed the lunch counter. So as we walked out of Grant's and turned west on Adams Street, I got this panorama. I saw a guy up on top of a truck with his camera. And I heard the commotion and saw people in the distance running down Adams Street and couldn't quite visualize what was happening. Then I saw the guy on top of the truck with the camera knocked off of the truck by somebody swinging something. And in a short period of time, we realized this was a mob and they were coming for us. Stores there on Adams Street started locking their doors. Our only option was to run to get out of danger. I ran down Main Street. Somebody picked me up and took me to the Lyra Street Presbyterian Church Youth Center. And slowly, members of the youth council started coming back, crying. The rumors started flying. Somebody got killed. Somebody got beat up. Two patrolmen from the sheriff's department showed up. They said they wanted to talk to us. But the pastor was there, Wilbert Miller. Reverend Miller, who was the pastor of the Presbyterian Church, was about 5'7". And Reverend Miller, looking up at the patrolman, from 5'7 to 6'1 or whatever the guy was saying, you will not set foot on church property. And they didn't. Jacksonville, Florida Mayor Hayden Burns publicly stated the horrific events of that day never happened. We had a press conference at the home of a black doctor, Dr. James Henderson. He was a dentist. And from there, we planned a mass meeting at St. Paul AME Church at the corner of 13th and Myrtle. We'd also heard that the Klan was going to march in the black community that night. So there were blacks sitting inside their cars with guns and rifles in case the Klan decided they wanted to come down Myrtle Avenue. We had reporters from all over the country. St. Paul AME Church looked like an international press conference. Uh, so we announced the boycott of the Times Union, announced the boycott of downtown Jacksonville. 
Over the next several months, a strategic plan was put into place by an unofficial biracial committee to integrate the downtown lunch counters. But we went down to Woolworths five days in a row to the white lunch counter, and Marjorie and I ate at the white lunch counter for five days in a row. And after those five days, all of the lunch counters in downtown Jacksonville were integrated. Civil rights movement has always been about we and us, not me and I. So everything we were able to do, we were able to do it for those folk who look like us. And as long as we are fighting racism and fighting for black human dignity and respect, the struggle continues and the struggle is not in vain. A short documentary about Axe Handle Saturday called Unless We Tell It, directed by Kyle Durrell, featuring our guest Rodney Hurst, who served as president of the NAACP Youth Council in Jacksonville, which organized those sit-ins in 1960. In fact, Rodney Hurst, it was August 27th when you were remembering that 63 years ago, Saturday, when yes. the shooting took place. Yeah, the um, the shooting was on Saturday. The uh, the actual day date or the date of the month was Sunday, which was the actual 63rd uh, commemoration uh, that we had. We've been having those commemorations over the years. In 1960, when sit-ins began uh, in Greensboro, North Carolina, by four students from North Carolina A&T, most of the sit-iners were college students. In Jacksonville, most of us were high school students, motivated not only to understand who we were in black history, but to join the Youth Council in AACP by my eighth grade American history teacher, uh, whose name was Rutledge Pearson. When I was 11 years old, I started school when I was five and I got skipped. So as my pastor would say, favor ain't fair. Uh, but I joined the Youth Council NAACP at 11, and I became president at 15 and led the sit-ins at 16. But 95% plus of the young people who sat in in Jacksonville were high school students. Mr. Pearson had a slogan that he would say to us, freedom is not free. If you're not a part of the solution, then you are part of the problem. And we wanted to be a part of the solution. I'd like to bring in Representative uh, Maxwell Alejandro F uh, Frost into the conversation. Uh, Representative, your response to the racist shootings in Jacksonville, uh, and also you called on Governor DeSantis to call for a special session uh, to discuss the matter. Uh, your sense of the governor's uh, the governor's role uh, these past. Uh, 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 in the past in terms of dealing with issues relating to the uh, black community. Yeah, well, thank you so much for having me on. And it, and it was just said, organizers, advocates, community leaders, uh, uh, clergy, folks across the state for years, for years have been pleading with the governor to do many things, but two things in relation to this tragedy that happened in Jacksonville. Number one, Act on gun violence in a country where the leading cause of death for a child is to be shot to death. 
We need to do something. In a country where we lose 100 people a day due to gun violence, we need to do something about the problem. And unfortunately, what we're seeing, especially in the Republican Party now, is not only do they not want to do anything about it, but they want to say there's no way to fix the problem, which I completely dismiss. That's not why we run for office as elected officials. The second thing, this governor consistently embraces and champions this far-right fascist movement That is growing across the country, but really Florida and Texas, I believe, are the two epicenters of. And that movement gives credence and and gives power to racist bigots like the murderer who went into that store and murdered three people and hunted three people down because of the color of their skin. All of these things are connected. When that shooter months before that would turn on the news, weeks before that would turn on the news to see that kids in Jacksonville, middle schoolers, would learn that black people who were enslaved benefited, had personal benefit from their slavery. That gives people credence. That pushes bigotry and racial hatred into people. And so, you know, I saw those videos and those pictures of the governor um, at the at the funeral, at the memorial, and I, I was tweeting about this. Get it? I've been in so many communities across this entire nation just after a mass shooting and just after a shooting. I've been doing gun violence work since I was 15 years old. And I get the want to, no matter who it is, have that unity. I understand it. But I have to say, I have to say, in moments like these, we have to stand strong on ensuring that leaders who contributed to the problem can't use our communities as campaign stops. And that's exactly what the governor did. And I'm happy that activists and organizers booed him and yelled to him, you're part of this, you're part of the reason this happened, because it's nothing but the truth. And and you're calling on the Department of Justice to launch an investigation into what's happening in Florida? Yes, yes, I am. This is very important, too. We as Democrats, as an organizer, we got to take steps back and look at where's our power now. We understand that with this far-right authoritarian leader as our governor, we need to look at power in other places, people power on the ground, but also the fact that Democrats, we hold the administration, we have the White House and President Joe Biden, and I want to see the Department of Justice do a lot more using every tool in their toolbox to investigate not just this specific incident, but everything going on in Florida. And, you know, myself, I sent a letter with uh, Congressman Jamie Raskin to Chair Comer of the Oversight Committee, the committee I sit sit, uh, sit on, and we Ask the chair, we need to have hearings on what's going on in the state of Florida because this anti-democratic governor, um, it's not just, you know, in the state of Florida, it's spreading throughout the entire country. We saw what happened in Tennessee with the Tennessee Three. Um, it's, it's this far-right movement that seeks to subvert democracy to consolidate power. And it's important that we talk about it. The chair completely, you know, did not respond to us. So I held my own hearing. I put my own hearing together, brought Andrew Warren, the state attorney who was taken out of office. That happened again with Monique Worrell. We brought a state representative, Anna Scamani. We brought a substitute teacher that was fired for simply posting footage of empty bookshelves because of the book ban. And we brought Jasmine Bernie Clark, who runs Equal Ground, that works on educating people across the state and fighting for democracy across the state and voting rights. And what we found in that hearing and through our research is the governor is targeting municipalities, counties, and people across the entire state 
that disagree with him and he's subverting democracy, removing them from office. And we, we can't stand for it. All of these things are connected. We need the Department of Justice to look into the racial hatred, the hatred of black people, hatred of immigrants going on in the state of Florida. Democratic Congressmember Maxwell Alejandro Frost, we want to thank you so much for being with us. The youngest member of the U.S. Congress, former National Organizing Director of March for Our Lives, which was formed by survivors of the Parkland shooting in Florida. And Rodney Hurst, civil rights leader from Jacksonville. All the best during this storm. I'm Amy Goodman with Juan Gonzalez.